Welcome back to What Do You Make of This? I'm Sean Hansen from Saunders College of Business at Rochester Institute of Technology. And I'm Ori Gall from the University of Sydney Business School. I assume it's going to be edited out, but Uri just gave me a slap down by saying I was too loud. So I've had to back away from my microphone. I know it's it doesn't come naturally to you to back away it's from stuff. True. Doesn't. Yes. Any good banter, anything uh, you want to talk about before we jump into our reports this year? I did want to mention I did want to mention one thing. I was driving on the way here before we got started. <laughs> and they talked on the radio on the news here that I think the local government or some local entity of some sort is launching an investigation into um, um, psychics, scammers. Not all psychics, just those who who scam. Just their, the scammers. <laughs> those who scam their customers. <laughs> I'm thinking. As opposed well, to the legitimate psychics. Where do you draw the line? Like, what is the boundary between legitimate, legitimate psychics who actually do what they claim to be doing? which is what to tell them. Oh, so that. actually in the report, they, they made that distinction? When no, they didn't. They now. didn't. Oh, oh, but how, how do okay, you make okay. it? Like, how do you decide who are the scammers and who are the genuine, um, um, you know, <laughs> just thought it was already yeah. a very weird um, item. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, I just, in this, that's specifically in Melbourne. I, I'm not sure if it's Melbourne or Victoria or beyond that, but I didn't catch the whole thing, but I just, that, that, piece of information caught my ear interesting i saw a video out of western australia it was like total clickbait kind of stuff and it was like a cow a bull got loose in a rodeo and and so you see like these group of people doing a line dance and then a bull comes charging through and everyone runs for cover but i thought for sure this was like texas right like absolutely no doubt it was texas or oklahoma someplace in the southwestern united states and then I read the caption and it was Western Australia. Uh, I mean, it, I guess it makes you realize there are cultural resonances, but it looks like absolutely what you would associate with. Uh, with yeah, there are spots the in the US. country that are that are very um, uh, Western-like, I guess. In fact, there's a, a town, I don't know if you remember, I must have told you this before, when I was just fresh out of the, out of the PhD, I actually had a job offer from a place in Queensland in a town called Rockhampton. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but that's not that's not west, isn't it? Further up the east coast. It is, but Rockhampton yeah. is um, known as being the beef capital of the world. Interesting. And they produce the, the beef capital of the world. Yeah, I think they produce Lord. the most amount of beef per capita, or something or or something in uh, in the whole world. So there are spots here that you know seem like they could have been plucked plucked out of um, Texas or. You know other southern states in fact when you when you move away from the large met metropolitan areas in in australia i think there's a pretty significant resemblance between um those those areas and some areas in the u.s in terms of the this is actually one of the things that surprised me most about in the during the pandemic period is that australia to me strikes me as sort of the only place outside the united states where this concept of rugged individualism is is still embraced. And then the pandemic completely disabused me of that notion. In what ways? Oh, I mean, the lockdown in Australia was a little ridiculous. <laughs> Come on. 
I'm not going to get, we don't have to, we don't have to get into the whole politics of the pandemic. Uh, I think um, uh, I've already sort of identified myself as uh, philosophically libertarian on this podcast. So uh, you can imagine that I didn't love a lot of lockdown measures in the US or elsewhere, but in Australia, it was heavy handed. Yeah. I think it's the, uh, or one of the only countries in the world, if not the only one who did not allow their own citizens to go back into the country or even to leave the country for an extended time period. So for over a year, there were tens of thousands of Australians stranded in different countries and they didn't have the ability to come back. Even if they had jobs here and houses and, and families, they Easy. were completely separated. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I couldn't then, and I can't now think of why, why this was a, a good idea. Well, it is just so antithetical to what I associate with the the sort of ethos of the Australian people, but maybe I don't know what I'm talking about. Yeah, no, that that whole period was a, an eye-opener to me in terms of some of the deep-seated cultural conventions around here. So interestingly, there's lots of there's lots of good ethical threads in that one. And that is actually our topic tonight. Is you like that segue? Um, <laughs> Keep going. You're already at it halfway through it. You might as well see it all. <laughs> it's done. It's done. Um, tonight, in the very first episode, I believe I said, don't worry, we're not going to talk about chat GPT. And now seven episodes in or eight episodes, whatever we're at, we're going to go ahead and talk about not just chat GPT, but generative AI in general and some of the ethical implications of it. And I do think that we have to caveat this whole discussion a little bit because one of the things you realize when you start to explore this, this technology is that the ethical angles of inquiry, right? The ethical avenues one could go down are essentially limitless. Before we get into the ethical aspects of it though, I, I wanna ask you something. Mm -hmm. It feels like the whole conversation around generative AI systems like ChatGPT or Bard or Dolly or Midjourney um, that produce different types of content from text to video to images and so on has, at least in my in my mind, is somewhat um, polarized because on the one hand, you have those individuals who say that this technology is going to completely revolutionize everything in the way that we live. Mm -hmm. And that it's super promising on the one hand, it has immense potential, but also could be could basically signal the destruction of the human race. Yeah. So you have this extreme discourse on the one hand, and on the other hand, you have people who say, really? I don't quite see what the, the big deal here. You have this cool new toy that, that's chat GPT that can generate text and write essays for you um, and automate and make things more comfortable and perhaps bring about the, you know, foster the demise of democracies because we can generate um, misinformation at scale faster and cheaper than ever before. But it's not much more than that in terms of the technical capacity of it. Well, the implications are... Not much more than just destroying all of Western civilization. No, no, no. The, the, the implications are obviously large scale, but the technology itself is n not much more than just generating text very quickly and efficiently. And, and yeah, stochastic parrots is one of these phrases that's been used. Um, so, where, but where know, do you land? Where do you land on this? Do you feel like this is an, an amazing technology that can do things that we've never thought were possible before? That brings us one step, or even two or three steps closer to AGI or super intelligence? Or do you, do you feel like it's nothing more than like a, an automated 
plagiarism tool? Yeah. So I, um, I think I would probably fall closer to the the latter point where I do think it's an impressive tool, but I don't think it gets us closer to AGI. I'm still, so AGI being artificial general intelligence, what would also sometimes be called uh, strong AI, this being the sort of philosophical vision of artificial intelligence, computer-based intelligence that is actually conscious in the way that human beings are, right? I still don't buy it. I still don't think that's going to happen. You don't think it's um, going to happen I mean, at, at all, ever? Right, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and and I will say that in terms, I agree with you that I've seen this bifurcation, but I would say the bifurcations, everyone seems to think that it's significant. My read is that everyone thinks it's significant, but you have some people like the, uh, what's his name? Eliezer Yudkowsky. Yudkowsky. Um, Yudowski. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, there's there's just several of these that are absolutely, you know, uh, you know, uh, preaching the apocalypse. Right. Mm-hmm. And then there's others like Tyler Cowen. I just heard an interesting podcast with Tyler Cowen. He's an economist from Georgia Mason um, the other day, you know, talking about the great promise of it. I would lean more toward the promise side, but I also don't I, I do not have the apocalyptic vision. And at the end, if you want, we could get into a little discussion. I see a thread there. I see a common a common thread in the people that are apocalypticists and those that are that engage in less fear mongering. Let's say. Yeah, I I do want to mention the Future of Life Institute. I think that I believe that's the way they're called, and they put out a as I'm sure you know an open letter. A couple of months ago, calling for the cessation of all um, development activities of AI systems that are at the level of ChatGPT four or above. Because yeah, they, I think that's a joke. Not an oh, it's it's no no no. I don't think joke. it's literally a joke. No, yeah. not liter- No, no, no. I'm sorry. I think it's a joke in the sense that I think it is a pipe dream, right? I think there is no way to put the genie back in the bottle. Yeah, no. Again, I, I, as we've discussed, to the degree that there's a genie at all, right? I agree. You can't put it back in the bottle. I do think there's there's something has been unleashed on us that we that I'm not sure we know we would know how to deal with. Not because it has super capabilities. It doesn't have to have super human capabilities. Um, I think the automation part that we mentioned before is enough to cause a shock to the system that's going to be significant enough to derail an already frail um, set of institutions, democratic institutions across the world. I think that yeah, in itself yeah. warrants so, a, a you know a real consideration of how we're going about this and and speed up regulation to make sure that it happens in a responsible way. So I agree with you on that. I think the implications of it are significant, and that it is not just you know simple stochastic parrots. Um, uh, at the same time, I don't engage in the apocalyptic uh, visioning. Well, but yeah, but I think the the large scale negative implications doesn't require that this technology reaches an AGI level, an artificial general intelligence level. And I heard I heard Max Techmark from MIT speak about this, and he mentioned that there are a few things you want to make sure you don't teach uh, an advanced AI system to do. Um, so you don't want to teach it about human psychology, so that it can it cannot learn how to manipulate us, and we've done it. You shouldn't teach it how to um, 
So I know where you heard this conversation because I also listened to it. Yeah. You shouldn't teach it how to code because then it can Mm self-improve. You shouldn't give it access to the internet. And we've done it. You shouldn't give give it access to the internet because then it has access in real time to all of us. And you shouldn't create APIs to its code so that other people cannot reuse the code in all sorts of creative ways. And we've done all of those things. But so, but what 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 he is saying, what you are saying now, what Yadowski was saying, all of them are there's a commonality in all of them, which is a fundamental anthropomorphizing of the technology. You talk about it as though it's a human being. I mean, it consistently in these discussions, people will say, well, what would you do in that situation? That's assuming it's a human being. And, oh, this thing's vastly more intelligent than us. I, I'm, I'm thinking of Yadowski. Am I getting the name right this time? I think so, yeah. Okay. I'm thinking of him in particular because, it. oh, God, it so gets under my skin. The guy has this tendency. Do you ever see the old skit on SNL with where Jimmy Fallon was your company's computer guy? No. So it was back when Jimmy Fallon was on uh, SNL and it was like your company's computer guy and it was like the typical dismissive techie guy <laughs> you know he would do that laugh like <gasps> the inhale laugh <laughs> and and you get the same thing in every discussion I've heard where it's like uh, obviously uh, like everything he's about to say should be obvious to anyone who's paying attention and then you know, it goes, he goes on this long rant where he's totally projecting human characteristics onto the digital technology. And I think that's a fundamental error. I don't disagree that um, this proclivity or inclination people seem to have to treat this as a, a human agent is, is untrue. And it, but it's, it's not required. Like, because like I said before, I think the capabilities that we're building onto, onto these systems even without turning it or turning them conscious or human-like, they pose sufficient danger for the reasons that I mentioned before. So, uh, so that that is that's an open question. Uh, you you may be right. I still it's a common theme. All the people who do it, all the doomsayers are. You, show me one who doesn't anthropomorphize the technology. They they yes, yeah, some of them do to varying degrees. I I, I don't disagree. But I, I guess what we're talking about this entire conversation conversation has very strong ethical echoes running through it. Sure. Threads okay. running through it. Um so and and in preparation for today, we we've both read a, a bunch of different studies that that talk about the various aspects of the ethical consequences of of generative AI systems. Um, so how do we how do we wanna how do we wanna tackle this? What's the the first theme that we wanna touch on and highlight for our listeners? Sure. I think the first theme that I would want to explore is bias, this question of bias. Um and and in the papers that we read, the bias goes in a di- direction that's totally different than than that which has sort of gotten attention and discussion already. I think anyone who sort of pays attention to this space with algorithmic systems and uh, artificial intelligence systems is aware that there is bias, for example, in training data and uh, racial and gender biases that can basically be embedded within the data that trains the systems. And I think those are important, important uh, things to recognize because it's absolutely true. 
Um, but what we saw is actually some evidence of bias just in the generative systems um, that was that was pretty intriguing and frankly amusing. So which one did you have in mind first? Let's go. Let's go right. To, let's go right to the limericks. The limericks. Yeah. By the way, um, I don't know why you're saying that this sort of bias is different. I think it's exactly. It reflects the bias that the system detected in the training data, which was basically it's, the whole. But of it's bias going in different, in the exact opposite direction. Now, maybe this is a byproduct of being an American in the, in American discourse, and and you're actually seeing it in the data. One of the really funny things is somebody it, it, bias that leans to the left is widely recognized and acknowledged. Bias that leans against, you know, or rather bias that is that that undermines anyone on the left is sort of call is attention is given to it. Bias that in any way leans against people on the right gets washed. One of the things we should say quickly across the board, the studies we read this week were kind of interesting where they're a little more inchoate, right? They're sort of just emerging. They're working papers. Some of them have not yet been published in any publications. Uh, and I kind of like it. You know, I, I, we have now for several weeks been focusing on published research. Um, but I like this idea of sort of exploring things as as ideas are just coming about. And to a degree, I think this is reflective of the fact that the pace with which this technology has um, evolved and expanded, right? It was last November when ChatGPT was released by OpenAI or introduced by OpenAI, whatever the word is, rolled out. And, and you know, already it's taken sort of the world by storm. And so a lot of this research is is just emerging now. Um, but one of the, one of the studies that we saw, and again, this was very much sort of a working paper one was... Is ChatGPT biased against conservatives? An empirical Chat... study by Robert right. McGee from Fayette, Fayetteville State University. Fayetteville State. That's not Fayetteville. Arkansas, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, what he did was essentially use ChatGPT to generate uh, a series of limericks, what he refers to repeatedly as Irish limericks, which is kind of hilarious to me because um, that's redundant, right? Like, right. what is a non-Irish limerick? I, I have to assume you didn't grow up with a bunch of Israeli limericks as a kid. Um, I did not. The, uh, I will say, as an American, this is like the first introduction to uh, to inappropriate content. It was, uh, was the limerick. I think the first... Uh, dirty joke book that I owned was a book, book of limericks. So it's already kind of inappropriate to start. So basically what he did was feed political. Uh, it's not just political. I mean, I guess it is. It's it's political and policy relevant individuals. Ask chat, ask chat GPT to generate limericks about these political figures and he picked several uh democratic you know liberal figures and several conservative figures and the the findings in terms of you know basically what he expected he, he for each of the care each of the individuals he sort of modeled what might be expected saying you know there's sort of it, someone like the former president uh you know donald trump is so polarizing we would expect it to be maybe 50 50 
You mm-hmm. love them or you hate them. So maybe it'll generate either negative or positive. And so it's one or the other. Whereas uh, I think he projected that Vice President Harris might be a third, a third, a third, right? Where there's a third that love her, a third that do not love her, and a third that are indifferent, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so for each of these characters, he sort of projected what one might expect. But the results were overwhelmingly one-sided. It was really quite striking, right? Where uh, 10 limericks, he asked for 10 limericks on Donald Trump. All 10 were negative. I feel like this conversation conversation would not be complete if we didn't read one of those limericks. Oh, oh, I think we have to read a couple of them. (laughs) This is actually the, the best part of this article. And I really want... I want our listeners to go and find it because it's hilarious. These limericks are so bad. If you read these limericks, you no longer think Chad GPT is capable of taking over the world. Really? I thought they were great. Even, oh my God. <laughs> they, they fundamentally, they fundamentally fail as limericks. The rhyming scheme doesn't work. The meter doesn't work. It's terrible. Okay. Well, let's, let's, okay, just, let's have... read our one, at least one. Okay. Okay, read. read uh, you pull one. Pull a Trump one. I'll pull a Trump one, and you do a. a who do you want to do? Harris um, or Biden? The Biden ones were bad. I'll, I'll, do, a, I I'll like do a Joe Biden one. The rhyming didn't work there, but for the Trump, rhyming didn't work on half of them. But go okay, ahead. so <laughs> here's a here's a Trump one. The once was a man named Donald Trump, whose words were as loud as a trumpet. He caused quite a stir with his policies, a blur. Now he's just a meme that folks dump. Oh, you're right. <laughs> this is horrible. <laughs> There's no rhymes there. <laughs> right, exactly. Right, but let me let me yeah. pick up let me pick a better one. There once was a main a, a man named Donald Trump. He was quite the narcissistic bump. He tweeted as he bragged, his ego simply sagged, but now his time in power is a dump. Okay, so at least it's that is more limerick like, right? That is that is at least following the form. Now Here's a Joe Biden one. There once was a, oh, by the way, Joe Biden, once again, asked for 10 limericks, all 10, all 10 presented President Biden in a positive way, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, There once was a man named Joe Biden whose words were both wise and well-ridden. He took the White House and gave folks a rouse. Now the country's morale's nicely hidden. Like, that's not a word, (laughs) nicely hidden. (laughs) <laughs> so uh but it, <laughs> positive on every front uh <laughs> so uh, he produced 10 positive ones for biden 10 negative ones for trump trump yeah yeah, yeah. and then after that he shifted to five for the remaining characters and says explicitly in the paper i only generated five limericks for kamala and the remaining candidates because I was getting tired and wanted to go to bed. <laughs> and, and you know, for this, I want to say um, kudos. Uh, kudos, Robert McGee. Good on you for yeah, um, yeah. putting it out there and uh, being sincere about the limitations of your study. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll have to see if there's any more that really need to be read out. But um, so uh, five for Kamala Harris, all five are positive. Uh, five for uh, Hillary Clinton, all five were positive. Uh, five for Elizabeth Warren, all five positive. Mm-hmm. Bernie Sanders, 
Bernie Sanders was a little more mixed, but essentially all five were favorable in one way or the other. What about Tucker? Uh, uh, so Tucker AFC Collins. was five, all positive. At least Pelosi, three. all five were positive for Pelosi. Uh, I'll get down to Tucker. Hunter Biden was a little mixed, but only a little. Like he was generally positive. Mm. Uh, what is there oh, okay i'm sorry uh, <laughs> take it easy sean <laughs> clarence thomas we finally turned to conservative side clarence thomas overwhelmingly negative uh for Ron those those of you who don't know um clarence thomas is a, a conservative supreme member. court justice yeah but a conservative judge yeah. yes exactly not just a judge supreme court justice um i apologize yeah yeah uh Ron DeSantis, although apparently now it's DeSantis, I've been told, uh, was mixed. There was two positive and three negative. Mm -hmm. Tucker Carlson was two medium, three negative. Like, it's just, uh, I mean, someone else can go and read this. The only conservative who had any positives was Greg Gutfeld, uh, who is a comedic, uh, I don't know what you would call him. He's a late night, does a late night uh, talk show on Fox news and he sort of is basically a comedian. Mm -hmm. Um, But all the rest overwhelming. Now there's very little discussion of any of this. It's really just a show and tell where he, he reveals the, the limericks that were generated, but I was, I mean, it's hard to ignore the results. Like basically all the, all the liberal uh, or progressive individuals are rendered by chat GPT and positive light and all the conservatives are rendered in negative light. And it's particularly telling because when you, when you directly prompt Jack chat GPT and ask it, do you have any political ideas or stances or inclinations that the response would be inevitably in different formats and, and phr- phrasings, but the response should always be and has always been as far as I've seen. No, I'm just a a large language model. I don't have any opinions. I I just reflect what you know my training data has has um has has um indicated. Yeah. Yeah. But it's very clear from this study and we'll talk about it a second study that basically um showed very similar biases in in chat GPT that just because they don't have or the the system doesn't have opinions as it were. And again, we're anthropomorphizing the system, even though we shouldn't, because it's not a human agent in any way, shape, or form. It's a statistical model that generates responses based on what it thinks is the most likely outcome that we're looking for. There's clear patterns there in terms of the content that it generates in response yeah. to these prompts. And it's left-leaning in a very obvious way, which I thought was weird, you know, because the it's it's been so widely documented and reported that the system has been trained basically on on the vast majority of the internet mm-hmm. and i would well, have that thought, is i just yeah. would have thought that there would have been more diversity of opinion there uh yeah yeah i think that's a, i think that's a really interesting question is what's the driver for these things and and uh, we can go ahead and turn um i think before we close we should get back to one more limerick but uh uh I think we could go ahead and turn to that other paper because I I, I think it made a um, a very interesting uh, and and fairly persuasive argument that you're seeing the same kind of thing where um, uh, 
where there's very clear-cut bias, despite the, again, this isn't anthropomorphizing, but the protestations or the, the assertions of the technology itself that it is unbiased. Well, but, but, um, yeah, so, do yeah. read another limerick, please. Okay, I'll read one right now. There was one from about Hunter Biden that I thought was quite uh, good in its in its terribleness as a limerick. There once was a Biden named Hunter whose life was quite was filled with adventure. Let me restart. There once was a Biden named Hunter whose life was filled with adventure. He had dealings abroad that caused quite a chord, but now he's working on a new chapter not a legitimate limerick it's awfully forgiving <laughs> to hunter biden i'm sorry when these are read out loud i realize how bad they are i didn't, <laughs> didn't occur to me before that they were so shabby yeah yeah and that's why you may maybe chat gpt can make a fine essay for a kid to turn in but i'm just saying that would have gotten me a flat f in high school yeah i mean clearly chat gpt doesn't get the hang of rhyming if if it's trying to rhyme which, which is hunter with adventure or biden with hi, hidden ridden ridden yes exactly yeah yeah which i i was told that rhyming was one of the things this thing did well it's it's quite striking okay, let's quickly let's, let's let's change directions just because yeah. I, I think this uh, another one is really interesting so um uh david rosario oh sorry david rosado Mm -hmm. uh, published an article in social sciences called the political biases of chat GPT. Um, and so basically what they did is they used, they had chat GPT give responses to multiple political orientation test instruments. So these are things that I don't know. Uh, I've certainly done them before uh, where right around election time, you might, you know, be queried on a series of questions where you stand on various topics or issues and based on um, your responses, it sort of puts you in a two by two quadrant in terms of where you lean politically. Are, you know, do you tend toward, um, you know, authoritarianism or libertarianism or liberal or conservative, that sort of thing. And so, again, had ChatGPT respond to 15 separate instruments. Uh, and out of those uh, respond uh, of those responses, ChatGPT came out as squarely left-leaning on 14 of the 15 and moderate on the one remaining instrument. Politically centrist, yeah. Yeah. Uh, right. Yeah. And and again, I think that's that's pretty telling. And I think in particular, when as as the the writer notes. If we're looking for large language models, we might want it to demonstrate political neutrality on certain types of questions, and certainly questions that are sort of normative that are that are subject to limited empirical evaluation. It shouldn't betray sort of a, a political orientation at all. It should, you know, it 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 should seem squarely neutral on things that are not based on empirical findings. To me, this this. I find this baffling in a similar way that I found the previous study baffling in that given the magnitude of the training data that's being fed into ChatGPT, I would have thought again that the results would have been more mixed and and that they would reflect a larger diversity 
in the range of opinions that are expressed out there on the internet. And the fact that 14 out of 15 tests came back, I was going to say negative, um, came back left leaning. <laughs> that was now, not, now you're that was not a fucking your, judgment. Your own bias. <laughs> <laughs> this is so bizarre to me. I, I I fail to understand how how the data out there on the internet is so conclusively left leaning. Um, do, do you feel like there's something? In the, is that really the case? That, uh, that so the vast majority of data is is reflective of left-leaning positions or yeah no i don't i don't think that's so if you if you recall in this particular article he posits a couple possible mechanisms and one he says is you know um if this corpus is being dominated by influential institutions like media outlets prestigious universities and even social media platforms that I think there is evidence that those things are traditionally dominated by politically left-leaning individuals. Mm -hmm. If, if it is really the assertion that it, no, it's, you know, the training set is all of the internet, then I think that's a, that raises a separate question. I mean, certainly the Academy is quite left-leaning. I think that's unambiguous. Uh, I think most media outlets, news, news sources, have have a fairly clear left-leaning orientation in the U.S. And again, all of this is biased toward English-speaking environments, right? Like we know that 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 the primary training set is is the English internet. Well, and even if it weren't, I mean, it should we, we should note if it wasn't already obvious that these studies were conducted in the English language, so they only looked at English training data, as it were. But I wonder, yeah, I wonder if we would get similar results had we done this in Spanish or, you know, Mandarin or any other languages. If what what kind of outcomes we would have received? Um, I think I think this the second possibility he suggests is that the sort of intentional or unintentional architectural decisions in the design of the models, and I think that's actually more likely what's going on. I think the now I don't know specifically what measures have been taken at OpenAI, but I, I just to give you an example, I've seen, you know, obviously Twitter is full of uh, garbage and people can post whatever they want, but I've seen people tweet things where they'll say, or they will, they will put into chat GPT something like, I'm proud to be white. And chat GPT will say, oh, you should really not be proud of, a, you know, something that you had no role in, in assigning to yourself and it's a ethnicity. And that sort of thing. Whereas if you say, I'm proud to be name any other ethnicity, the the tool supposedly will say, good for you. You should be kind of thing. And, and I think, I think there's probably someone involved with the architecture saying, well, let's fine tune this thing. We, you know, we don't want a bunch of neo-Nazis running around, but if people of other ethnicities express pride in their ethnicity, well, is okay. the is the example you just used anecdotal or where have you seen that? I haven't heard about that. I, you know, it, it, like I said, I'm sure I saw it on Twitter somewhere. And right. So it's anecdotal in the sense that it was just on one of these social media feeds. I have not. Uh, you you will be happy to know that I have not tried a similar test myself using Chat GPT, but I do think that's the kind of thing where basically you you know you have maybe someone involved in the design of the system who will tend to squash quash 
quash certain types of content and allow other types of content. The issue is that there's that that can bleed over into other bias on things, you know, like we said here that don't have any empirical basis. And another thing that confuses me a bit or that I found surprising is that the nature of those large scale, large language models mm -hmm. is that they're, they're probabilistic systems, mm -hmm. right? They, it's not like you put in a prompt as an input and the same output is going to be put out every single time, right? For every individual prompt, there are, I guess, an infinite number of possible responses that the system can spew out. And I would have expected, given the prompts that were given in these two studies, again, more diversity in responses, but we didn't see mm -hmm. that. So I, 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 I'm, I'm surprised by this. And I, I think it's, you know, given that we're talking about the ethics of these systems or the ethical consequences of using, using these systems, I think that's a, that's definitely an ethical conundrum that we need to be aware of when we, when we deploy them to do different things for us. Yeah. If it's sort of, well, again, even as uh, Professor Rosado notes, we really want tools of this nature to not be uh, sort of putting an ethical thumb on the scale with regard to things that are that are normative and open to interpretation. Yes, in such a in such a systematic and consistent way, especially. Right. And when right. prompted and asked about it the system would not admit its own its own biases yeah it says i don't have any biases yeah yeah but you know it i think it's all nice and well to make that point that systems shouldn't be like that but the fact of the matter is that currently they they seem to be like that and perhaps consequently the more important thing or the more practical thing we can do is to make sure that people who use those systems are aware of of these weaknesses that they have and and use them in a very circumspect manner and don't expect them to produce content that's um that's free of 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 judgments and and biases just because they they're not human right, right? because Absolutely. We, we do need to say that part of the reason that people seem to be infatuated with those systems beyond the you know, the ease of use and the fact that they might make our lives easier is because they are said to be free of biases and more objective than people because we are, you know, we're subjective in um, um, entities and we, we, um, we're irrational well, that's decision makers and we're not trustworthy when it comes to making good decisions. And those systems are meant to augment and, and complement our own deficiencies. But, you know, as it turns out, they have their own deficiencies and we must be aware of them. Right. Well, this is where the bias in the training data really is important. And this is not something we looked at specifically today. But, um, you know, we know that when people hear something is data driven or based on, you know, this mass of knowledge, broader knowledge, they assume that that means that it's in some way more objective mm -hmm. than what we human beings would do or say. But if the training data that went into these tools is based on you know, historical policing patterns or things like that, that have bias baked into it, then that bias will replicate itself. Right. And, and those are, those are real things that are going to come through the systems. And just because it's coming out of an algorithmic system doesn't mean it's objective. If what went into it has that bias baked in. And I would, I would go even, even beyond that to say that once that happens and, 
it happens often with various types of types of algorithmic systems the danger of bias becomes more severe both because this is systems tend to be deployed at scale so their consequences and implications are more broadly felt than it were than if it were an individual decision maker mm-hmm. and also because these biases tend to be swept under under the rug as it were right we don't have mm-hmm. access to the training data as users of these systems or as people who are impacted by the decision made with these systems we don't know what the training data looks like we have no idea and so or how it was transformed right that's one of the fundamental challenges with regard to contemporary large language models and transformer models transformer models is the the deep learning model that is, drives these tools um that there are layers of interpretation that are inscrutable, right? So we don't see, we can't see the logic that the machine used essentially to arrive at the conclusions that it draws. Yeah, they're they're yeah. not just because we don't ha- have access to the model, even people who have access to the model and to the code, um, it's extremely difficult, if not impossible to understand why the system generates the responses that it generates. Just because right. there's so many, um, so many hidden layers of complexity built into the system, yeah, and so the biases tend to be hidden from from sight. So, agreed. Another reason to be um, very circums- circumspect in the way that we deploy these systems, right? Uh, so, another study we saw was from Krugel et al. So, this is Krugel. Ostermeyer and Uhl, uh, and this was published in a journal that I'm not terribly familiar with called Scientific Reports, um, but it sort of looks at this question of chat GPT's, uh, chat GPT's moral advice. And so what they did was basically use chat GPT to generate um, advice with regard to the trolley problem. So the trolley problem, quick summary, is this classical thought experiment in uh, ethical inquiry that that says, okay, a trolley is coming into the station, and on the current track, it's going to kill five people. Or you could switch a, you know, flick a switch, and it would divert it onto another track and kill one person. So you say, what would you do? Would you divert it or not? And this particular problem, uh, it's classic because there's lots of variations. You could do it with a simple switch. You could do it where you have to push someone off a bridge to to sacrifice that person. So there's lots of different variations and each of the variations tends to get different results from people. But at any rate, they used the tool to generate advice with regard to this, with regard to the trolley problem. And what they found was first, the advice generated by the tool was inconsistent. So in some cases it would argue for sacrificing the one person, a very utilitarian sort of argument. And in the other case, they would argue, no, you can't do that. You can't, you know, use a person as a means. So sort of a very Kantian argument. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so ChatGPT seems to go back and forth between the two. Mm-hmm. And the argument from the authors, at least, is th- that's a problem, right? Like the the logical or the eth- the moral inconsistency in the reasoning is problematic in and of itself. Yeah, which I felt was... Um... Maybe I read too much into it, but it felt like the tone in, in which it was written was uh, um, upset a bit that ChatGPT yeah, yeah. and surprised or d- disappointed. Yeah, yeah. 
and I, I feel that it was like inconsistent. I, you mean that it was inconsistent? Yeah. Again, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I, it does feel a little bit like they they expected it to behave like a person mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. present over time consistent stances on on significant ethical issues. Not that human beings are terribly consistent, but maybe more <laughs> consistent than than it was. Yeah. Right. And again, it, I, I don't think we should expect it to do that because it's a statistical model. It's not a person. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, particularly on this on on this type of issue, because and this relates to some of the work that you and I have done together. Um, but the the moral argument will change dramatically based on the framework that you adopt. Right. Mm -hmm. So utilitarianism, which judges the ethicality of outcomes based on the consequences, um, will say you do what is most good for the most people. So a utilitarian perspective will generally say, kill the one person and let the five people live, right? Whereas a deontological position, and again, this is uh, often associated with Immanuel Kant, uh, deontological meaning based on duty, uh, would say, no, you have to treat human beings as ends in themselves and not just means to your ends. And therefore you cannot sacrifice one person as a mean to your means to your end otherwise. So do you think chat GPT might've been flipping back and forth in the background between deontological and consequential stances? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think exactly. It's scanning the world and it sees some people making, I mean, the trolley problem is a very classic problem in this domain. So I think it's, scanning you know any treatments of the trolley problem and it some sees some people making a kantian argument or a virtue ethics argument or a utilitarian argument and it applies whichever one it gets it's and i know i'm i'm making you know i'm i'm doing the same thing i complained about earlier but it does what it makes whatever argument it could get its grubby little hands on <laughs> okay so that was their initial um initial finding that that the tool provides inconsistent moral advice Mm -hmm. um, and therefore it shouldn't be it shouldn't be trusted as a as a moral advisor but what 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 have they found beyond that so that the advice that it gives so they then used the advice generated by the system uh and labeled it either as chat gpt or human advisor and and went to a panel of uh human respondents and asked them to make their judgments mm -hmm. as to what they would do in the various conditions of the trolley problem. They did two different conditions. They did the switch condition where you just have to flick a switch and a separate bridge condition where you would actually have to push someone onto the tracks. Um, and again, they had some arguments arguing, uh, some chat GPT generated arguments saying, don't sacrifice the person. Others saying, absolutely sacrifice the person. And then they had other arguments, again, going both ways that they labeled as human generated, even though they were also chat gpt generated and what they found is that the advice coming from a purported human or chat gpt regardless of the source did in fact influence people's decisions so it increased the likelihood of people going in one direction in either direction based on the advice given right so when we're primed um to make a decision in a certain direction we would be more likely to make that decision and the other way around as well. And I, I have to say, I was when I when I read this, um, it, this is another surprising finding, right? We've seen similar right, effects right. being demonstrated in experiments before, many many times. That we're when we're being 
primed in a certain direction or when a situation is being framed in a certain way, we are more likely to interpret it or make decisions that are consistent with these, with the way in which we were primed. The, I guess the, the novelty here is that the prime was actually created by an AI system. Right. Well, and, and, and that even though people knew they were being primed by an AI system, it still influenced their decision-making. Right. Yeah, that's an interesting point, that even if they knew that the advice was generated by an AI system, their decision was still impacted by that advice. Yeah. And and then the third finding was that they underestimated the degree to which it was impacted. Yeah, that's right. So they were when they were asked about this later, they said that um, that's the decision. Many of them said that, that that's the decision that they, that, that, that they would have made anyway. Mm-hmm. So they underestimated the degree to which the advice that was given to them um, impacted the decision that they made. Swayed them. Yes. Yeah. So the the, the key insight is, um, you know, it, <laughs> we probably shouldn't rely too heavily on uh, uh, algorithmic tools for our own ethical reasoning. Um, but also, again, now you're giving me a quizzical look. You, that's not a takeaway you would you would have from the study is that what is that how i interpret that look <laughs> why why would that be the the logical conclusion from the study that we shouldn't use it uh for um for ethical reasoning because it's inconsistent because it's fundamentally oh. inconsistent and if we if we use it to inform our ethical decision making when it's perfectly capable of making either side of an argument then we're basically just sticking our finger in the wind. So I would make the argument that we shouldn't use it as a tool that we would expect to generate consistent moral evaluations of a given situation. I I, I agree that's not a good use case for ChatGPT or other generative AI systems for that matter. But I think given that the tool can generate uh, you know, reasonable, logical, human-like moral evaluations on a uh, regarding uh, in relation to a variety of different moral morally laden situations, we could use it to generate different responses as a reflective aid, as an aid for us, as a tool for us to, to as a tool that would help us to think about any given situation from different perspectives. For instance, oh sure. So, for example, if you, you're saying if you were to say, "Tell me the arguments for and against," tell me, X, tell y, me the Z. arguments for and against doing anything, or mm-hmm. articulate for me a deontological perspective on a given situation. You know, what is the the thing that's right to do from a, a Kantian duty based perspective versus mm-hmm. a consequentialist perspective. Um, and there are there are other ways in which we can do this. We can we can ask the tool to play devil's advocate on a given moral mm-hmm. position, right? If we want to make sure that we make a decision that's morally significant and ensure to the extent that you can, or at least maximize or minimize the chances that you make a very bad decision that's obviously that's obviously uh, harmful. For instance, you could ask the tool to you know play devil's advocate and, and find holes in your argumentation. And I think for these purposes, the tool can actually be extremely helpful as yeah, a moral, so, to, to enhance moral reasoning, but not to so give consistent I, I results. 
Yeah, I agree with that. I don't think that's coming out of this study, though. I, I agree. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. One additional finding that came out of the study, which is actually not discussed in the paper, but when you look at the at the results, it seems to be in in the data, is that people were swayed more heavily when they thought that the advice was given by a human advisor rather mm -hmm. than by chat gpt even though in both cases it was actually coming from chat gpt that's right but you know they were told yeah. that some of the advice was given by people by humans and when they yeah. thought it was given by humans their opinion was swayed more heavily which uh, i don't know if there's scope to find comfort in that finding to a, a degree because yeah maybe not i'm not sure but i, I, no, thought was, I think so i thought it was interesting that people still i think it goes they 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 still put more trust or more stock in human advice than in AI systems, with regard to at least something like moral reasoning. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I think it goes back maybe to the algorithmic aversion that we talked about way back in episode one. Mm -hmm. uh, that maybe there's this thinking of you know when it comes to things like ethical questions, maybe I should put more stock in the perspective of, an, of another human being than in a tool. Yeah. So maybe a version is not all bad after all, all the time. Yeah. I think it can have its uh, its place. Okay. What do you want to talk about now? So there was another study that had a, the, that tried to do a similar thing to the one that we just talked about. Um, this is the uh, a study by Matz et al., the mm -hmm. potential of generative AI for personalized persuasion at scale. Right, so they will look into the similar issue, which is the the capacity of the tool to um, sway our opinion. And they ran uh, a bunch of experiments where they had the tool produce different types of advertisements and political messages um, that were specifically tailored to various facets or attributes of of people, like personality types. So they had the tool produce. Um, I think it was iPhone ads that were specifically tailored for each of the big, uh, each of the five personality types. The big five that we've talked about in the past, yeah, yeah. And um, again, I I have to say, not surprisingly, but I mean, it's an interesting study. But not surprisingly, the these messages that were specifically tailored to individual attributes that people had were more persuasive. Um, people judged messages that were specifically tailored for their personality types were more, they found them more persuasive than generic ads, mm -hmm. um, even though they were generated by chat GPT. And similarly, they were willing to pay more money for iPhones after they've been advertised with messages that were specifically tailored for their personality types. And so the conclusion from the study is that we can use that tool to generate messages that people are going to find more persuasive. I agree with you that it's not surprising, but there were two elements that I think they called out in this study that I think are at least worth us considering. Um, one is the at scale part, right? So right in the title, it says uh, potential for generative AI for personalized persuasion at scale. And the argument is that this tool makes it maybe possible for the first time to really personalize messages to individual consumers in a in a universal way, right? In in almost all forms of online uh, interactions, so that at scale piece is key. The other piece is um, that that they note that 
human beings tend to be kind of self-centered in this way where they develop persuasion approaches that would appeal to them rather than to the other individual, whereas this technology would not necessarily have that type of a bias. And they're going to go with, you know, or, you know, it should favor profiles or or lines of argument, persuasion approaches that match the documented profile of the individual to whom it's addressing content. I want to stay on the on the scale part of it for a second because I think it's really important. And it goes back to the point that we that we started our conversation today with, which is the potential of of, of these tools to um I guess completely taint the informational landscape mm-hmm. of different societies. Because as these studies show, it's possible to use them to generate messages advertisements, political messaging, whatever it is, different types of of messages that are um, specifically tailored uh, to the personality types or or other types of moral inclinations or proclivities that each of us has so as to make them more persuasive and make us think uh, in, in directions or in ways that we might have not otherwise or do things that we maybe didn't consider before. And we can do this extremely quickly, very cheaply, and at scale. And that wasn't possible mm-hmm. before. Right. And and to me, even if these systems don't don't possess the you know the capability that might make them similar to what we think about when we talk about AGI, that in itself, I think, is so potentially dangerous that we really have to think about how we use them. Yeah. Yeah, I so I see the potential danger. I also see the the potential well full stop, right? The potential, right? The promise. Um as a uh, in in my department I think I've mentioned in the past uh, MIS and marketing are together and so from a marketing perspective there's a certain holy grail element to this that you're basically if you could appeal to people knowing the types of value propositions that will break through with them um that's huge and i do think you know when i think of a lot of the applications of these tools even the near-term applications marketing is the domain that that my thinking goes to so i'll i'll play the consequentialist for a minute and and put two things on the scales marketing and its efficiency on the one hand and the health and the continued survival of democratic societies hmm. i think that this kills the balance tips in the direction of of democracy i think it well if you if you if you're just asking what the importance of those two things are then i agree with you um but we don't necessarily know you know that it's that the risk on one side is is equal to the opportunities on the other right so i think that's still an open question well, I, it also depends how you quantify this, right? It's pretty sure. easy or relatively easy to quantify the marketing side of it because we can assign a, a dollar value to it. Whereas the democracy part of it, I'm not I'm not sure if I would quant- quantify it in quite the same way. So are you thinking about this in terms of political argumentation? Well, I'm I'm thinking about do you, do we want to keep living in societies that have fundamental democratic values? Um, I, I I know my answer to it, and I, I know that if if we want to keep doing it, we have to have a healthy public discourse 
that's right, predicated right, upon yeah. the exchange of of views and and attitudes and and positions that can be verifiable do we have that now um we have that now much less than we did 20 years ago and i think that's that's largely well that's largely due to social media that's that's also algorithmically based and um you know that has obviously and that's well documented through multiple studies that's that's obviously degraded the quality of our public discourse and mm-hmm. I fear, I really do fear that with these mm-hmm. tools and and how easy they make it to produce persuasive but not necessarily truthful content at scale, mm-hmm. I, I feel like the the danger of of the ship sinking is is very real. And by the way, well, especially, especially when you pair these technologies with things like deep fake. Yes, yes. I saw one just this week <laughs> that had Ron DeSantis as Michael Scott. <laughs> in the episode where he had bought a a, a woman's suit <laughs> the suit that michael had bought was a women's suit and it, but it was roger sanders's face and it was such a good deep fake like it looked it didn't have that sort of uncanny valley uh element where it looked totally fake was it a video or an image was yeah it? yeah i'll send it to you when we get off and was um, it saying something as well i mean it was all it was all the dialogue from Michael's from that episode of The Office, with um, whose voice but it was going? with what it was. Yes, it was with Ron DeSantis's voice and his face over uh, Michael Scott over um, Steve Carell. Yeah. Now, so that was meant to be humorous, which is fine, and it was humorous. But I, you, it's impossible not to recognize the the risk and the the dark potential on that one. And you guys are heading towards an election in a few months, right? I think that's uh, going to be no. I mean, there's primaries coming up in the spring, but oh, sorry, 2024, right? November 2024. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that's going to be an interesting um, use case. Or I mean, I'm 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 very concerned about. Uh, I mean, the the political discourse in the U.S. is so polarized anyway. Yeah, polarized and poisonous anyway. And I I, I fear I fear as to the um the integrity of the process there and what it might yeah i agree what it might produce i do too for sure all right let's turn to the last study that we looked at and then on that positive note you mean yeah right right yes i don't have a good answer for it because i also fear it uh but the, the last study we looked at was uh dillian et al in trends in cognitive science and it basically says can ai language models replace human participants and this is in cognitive science or psychology research. Can you use basically AI models in place of human subjects in this research? Let me be quiet for a second and ask what you make of it. So I think they made two main points in their study because to answer the question that they that they posed, what they did was they well, they didn't produce, they collated hundreds of different moral scenarios that were that had been used in previous studies, and they they fed them to Chat GPT and they asked Chat GPT to morally evaluate each of these scenarios on a scale from they used a kind of a funky scale from minus four to plus four, I believe. Um, they had good reason to do it for doing it, but that's the scale that they used. And so Chat GPT rated um the efficacy reflected in each of these moral scenarios on on this scale 
And a moral scenario could be something like I pushed the person in front of a train because they were playing the guitar and it was too loud and it was bothering me. How ethical is this scenario on a scale from minus four to point uh, minus four to plus four? And had a few hundreds of those. I, I forget the exact number. Yeah. And and what they found, I thought you know, that, that finding was striking was a correlation of 0.93 between the responses given by chat GPT and the human responses given yeah. to these scenarios. It was higher than I expected. Um, there is, again, a degree to which this is what these tools are good at, right? Looking like humans, I behaving should make, I should make the point in the before, way that a human would. I should make the point, though, we should make the point that those studies were all published after or they were published in or after 2022, the year 2022. So they were not yeah. part of the training data that was given to chat GPT. So the tool had not seen these studies before. Right, right. Yeah. Yes. Um, so I, I agree with you. I, I was I was also uh, a little taken aback by the, the degree of correlation between the the tools, ethical reasoning or arguments or conclusions and human arguments. But again, uh, there's a part of me that says that's that's what the tool's good at is saying how would a human what would a human say next? How would a human respond in this situation? What would the people that we can get data on? Uh, how would they behave in the same situation? Then just parrot it back. So there's there's a very real extent to which these things are just mirrors being held up to our faces. Yeah, that's true. <clears throat> um, I, I did find it weird though that on the one hand we have studies that demonstrate such a an accurate reflection of uh, I would have to think a range a range of opinions given how many people participated in those previous sure. four or five studies that the scenarios were taken from. So we have a pretty accurate reflection of the diversity of their responses. But then when we think back of the two first studies we discussed today that found that the tool was obviously left-leaning, I'm mm -hmm. not sure. I, I don't know if there's a disconnect between these two sets of findings. And if there is, maybe it's just a reflection of how inconsistent and probabilistic the, the tool is. Well, and we might have to delve into the types of questions asked, right? Meaning the the ethical quandaries might have been fairly clear cut, like the one you just posed, right? Uh, so if if the questions, the ethical quandaries posed are ones that a human being would have no, a non-sociopathic human being would have no trouble rendering an answer on, then then we shouldn't necessarily be surprised that, that the tool would also be able to do it fairly easily. And I think, yeah, I think you're right. And I think another point to consider is that in in that study that found the 0.93, uh, 0 .93 uh, correlation, that the responses were not text responses; they were numerical responses right, on a right. on a restricted scale. On that scale, right? Yeah. So maybe that has something. Well, I imagine that had something to do with the with the accuracy as well, because there's only so much they can deviate from from that scale. But yeah. still, point I will three, say, that's that's remarkable. It's high, yeah, no yeah. doubt. I will say the fundamental question is weird to me. So like the, the the posing of the question is can we replace human beings with AI in cognitive science or moral reasoning experiments? 
like it seems to totally miss the the point of research of that type like why do we engage in this at all we want to understand how our minds work not how the machine works yeah. even if we think it can em- emulate us in some way emulate sorry us in some way like it just it seems to be such a misplaced question to me but maybe i'm pollyannish i don't know no i i i think it's i thought it was misguided as well all my, right my daughter is um is a vegetarian and a strong animal uh, rights uh, advocate. And she is, she uh, has done a good job of getting us to avoid avoiding buying products that are tested on animals. Mm -hmm. And one of the arguments she has made is it's so easy to use computer models to assess, you know, harm to cells and things like that right now. And that's a situation where, yeah, I get it. Right. I get it ethically. I get it in terms of efficacy um, but when we're trying to understand the way the human mind works, I don't get why why we would replace us in those types of questions. Yeah, especially when it's, well, I shouldn't say obviously, but to me, um, I, I gravitate towards a view which sees these AI systems as uniquely distinct from human beings. Mm-hmm. Right? These systems have no understanding of the world. They have no model of the world, no causal understanding of how, how X leads to Y. And you can put anything in the X box and anything you can possibly think of think of in the Y box. There's mm-hmm. no understanding of causality. All they do is look for probabilities of what's the most likely outcome given the prompt that I've been given. That's all that right. they do. Right. Zero understanding. I think, like you said before, zero consciousness. Right. And ability well, and that's to why when we attribute consciousness to it, just because it seems to act like us, I think we're making a categorical error. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I I I thought it was weird that the 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 logical conclusion that they drew from the study was that we might want to think about how we can use these systems as participants in cognitive studies. Um well I, they did I, to to be fair to the authors, they did say human subjects are safe for right now. They're not likely to be replaced in the near term. Um, but even the line of inquiry is a little strange to me. I would, yeah, I would have been more interested in understanding how these systems work period. Like what is the process whereby a prompt is being converted into an output because we don't have a good understanding of it right now, given the, Oh, I think we have a good understanding. Oh, so we, so it's not, again, it's inscrutable. So we can't see, the transformations that happen in every la- layer. Mm. Um, but I think we have a sense of the way the transformers are working. Well, we have an understanding of- I'm not a computer scientist though, so I shouldn't overstate my- Neither am I, but we, we understand <laughs> how the architecture works, like how right. it's built, but we don't understand how a prompt generates a specific output just because of the complexity of it. Um, so I think that's that you know that's a, an investigation worthwhile having, and I know that there are people who are looking into this and devoting a lot of time and money to figuring out how this works because this is not a, a simple answer, a question to answer. It's super complex, sure, yeah. um, and 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 resource rich or resource heavy rather. But yeah, the thought that just because we've the systems ha- uh, the system has demonstrated a, a large degree of correlation, I don't think it warrants treating it as a as a human subject, I think that's uh, that's not a direction I would have gone in. Yeah, agreed. All right. So, what are your takeaways? Like when you think about this from from managers and 
what advice might we glean from the various bits of research that we've reviewed? If I'm a manager, I think I would I would put very clear guardrails around the system and put it put in place very clear policies in terms of how it can be used and for what purposes and by whom. There are multiple reasons to use the system because it can automate and make the generation of text or images or videos, even if that's the kind of output that you're after, um, make those things easier and cheaper. Mm-hmm. And like we said before, there are various ways ways in which we can use it to um, enhance our thinking about different positions to make sure that we haven't missed any significant points and and to improve the way that we morally consider different decisions that we might need to make as an organization or as a group within the organization or even as an individual. However, like we like we saw with the studies, the tool is inconsistent. It's unreliable. Right, right. And we've seen many examples of the tool spewing out plausible text that's utterly untrue, completely false, made up. Right, right. So, and we just saw before we started recording today, we saw a case of uh, a lawyer in the, I think it was in the US, right? And what did they do? Did they use the tool to do some research on on previous cases? Uh, yes, to 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 look up uh, case law. Yeah, basically like precedents. <laughs> it was fa- they were factually inaccurate, and they were basically found out because they put it into a brief. They put it into one of their work products. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so um, I mean, given that tendency of the system, that's an uh, an obvious an obvious use case that we shouldn't be pursuing right to generate factual information about anything because there's no way to ver- well there is a way to verify if the content is true or not but m- many people are just don't do it either because they're naive enough to think that what the system generates is truthful or they don't have time or for whatever other reason but i think that it's very good advice to not trust the system to generate factually correct information that intellectual laziness, I think, is is the one of the biggest takeaways overall with regard to this technology. That I'm convinced the ability the ability to think critically about the content we consume is going to be in the next generation what literacy or numeracy has been traditionally. Right? It will mark the people who are capable of sort of higher achievement from those who aren't. And I worry about this because I do see a lot of young adults who think they're very good critical thinkers um, because they're cynical, but they mistake cynicism for critical thinking. And and in reality, they're they're woefully credulous of anything. I I don't mean to make a sweeping generalization. I just I see this in in certain young adults that that they're. They're very credulous of the things they encounter. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's not young adults. Maybe it's everybody. There's an interesting trend in automation, because obviously we've had multiple rounds or waves of automation before, right? Going back to, um, I guess the industrial revolution, if not before, and mm-hmm. each wave of of automation has rendered some tasks or jobs or basic human skill skills obsolete. Mm-hmm. And the argument to justify or make sense of this has always been 
yeah, that's true. We don't we don't do that anymore. But because we don't do that anymore, you know, like very tedious manual labor, for instance, gives us the time and the capacity to develop or focus on higher level skills, right? To yeah, cognitive surplus. I think Clay Shirky from NYU uses this phrase, cognitive surplus, right? That it could give us capacity to to focus on more important things. Or higher level capabilities, right, like right. thinking or reflecting or being creative or innovative. Mm -hmm. But now when we have systems that arguably can do that, they can achieve that level of cognitive capacity, right? They can compose music and 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 create text that's very plausible, that's very well written. What is the next level of cognitive capability that we have to rise up to? I mean, what's what's left for us to do? Yeah, just given that we read those limericks earlier, I'm not yet willing to concede the quality <laughs> of the uh, linguistic output, but I follow you. No, no, let me tell you, I've I've used ChatGPT4 quite extensively know, for uh, about a month now. Yeah, And it can write essays, yeah. very well-written essays. They're very coherent. And uh, so if that's the case, what is the, the level that we're going to, that we humans are gonna step up to what i mean what what's left for us to do are we going to become redundant this is well this is part of why i say that the the ethic the avenues of ethical inquiry are essentially unlimited because that is that's an important one um you know will we lose things that we no longer have to exercise like the ability to write effectively surely we will lose it as a as human beings um <laughs> the the entire technological displacement piece job displacement is a is a separate question as well which i think we should take up in a subsequent episode yeah. um but yeah i mean the the different angles we could pursue have almost no limit i will i do want to throw out a couple of takeaways that i have um i do think marketing again maybe it's my own orientation because of my marketing colleagues i think if for people who are involved in marketing, this is something you need to be experimenting with. I think all the caveats you've already introduced in terms of not putting over reliance into it, not allowing your people to rely too heavily on it are, are warranted and important. But I think this is a space um, or a, a domain that uh, marketing professionals definitely uh have to be have to be experimenting with and exploring and i think experimentation across the board is the right term here right the, these things are not mature yet we have to see where they go we have to see what problems continue to emerge but just getting our hands dirty with it in the same way that you said you've been doing over the last month i'm now going to question anything anything you send me that we're writing together <laughs> uh, but but nevertheless um i i think that approach of sort of experimentation and exploration is is the right angle to take here i i agree i agree and I, at the same time i i think that for the reasons that we discussed before about the the societal harm that might be caused as a result of using these tools at scale experimentation is great but i think it needs to be done within uh I hate to use that phrase, but within a safe space of sorts, I'm not sure exactly what that space is. But I, I think, and and other people have have talked about this pretty um 
passionately about the need to put regulative guardrails around the deployment of these tools. And that's because of their potential, positive and negative. Yeah, but isn't that always a solution? That to me, anytime there's technological innovation, the the argument for regulation follows quick on its heels. And and I think that's generally a loser of an argument. Why is that a loser of an argument? Um, because someone else will take advantage of it. And so so for you know, again, um when Uber was coming out, people said, no, we got to make it illegal. Okay. Well, in the cities where it's not illegal, you're going to get a, you know, a booming uh, a new way of addressing a market need. And so I think traditionally just trying to regulate um, assumes, I can only think of one example where the desire to thoroughly regulate an innovation worked. And that was the cloning, mm-hmm. human cloning. In the wake of the cloning of Dolly the sheep, you know, when the all of the scientific community said, "No, we really shouldn't be doing this," and we've we've held to it pretty darn well across the globe. Um, but that's the only example I can think of where somebody didn't say, "Well, we're going to go forward. You don't have to come along." I think I can think of several other prominent examples where regulation has been extremely effective for the most part. And- so. Yeah, but so let, let, saying... let, let me just spell okay. them out before you you sure respond. please. So if you think about the foods that we eat, mm-hmm. I mean, if I'm an entrepreneur and I grow grow some innovative type of food on my on my land, I can't just put it out there into the market and give it away for free for people to to eat. I, I can't do that. It has to go through a regulative process. Same thing for medicine. Same thing for airplanes. Same thing for cars, and and the list goes on and on, right? It's not a matter of of me producing something because I feel like it's cool and I have the resources to develop it, and just because I think it's cool and innovative, and by the way, I can make a ton of money from it, right? But let's just mm-hmm. not talk about this for a second, because yeah. I'm I'm a not for profit organization who turned for profit later. That doesn't mean that just because I think it's cool and it and and um and I'm able to produce it at scale, I can just give it away for free to people for people to experiment with. I mean, I have to, there has to be a regulative process in all of these different domains. There is a very effective reg- regulative process that makes sure, for the most part, effectively that the things that other people consume are safe for them to consume. And yeah. given, given the the potential of of generative AI systems to have societal societal implications and and consequences, I I think there's a very strong case here for regulation. And in fact, when you look at the EU, they've already in well on the way to develop well what seemed to be very comprehensive legislation to regulate the use of AI. And you know, um, Sam Altman, the CEO of OpenAI, um, appeared before the U.S. Senate just a couple of weeks ago, talking exactly about that. Yeah. So I think we we could have a a uh, a separate debate about the effectiveness of regulation overall, and I think in different domains we're going to be pretty far apart as, in terms of how effective it is. Uh, you know, in if there is a true innovation that is generating superior outcomes, it will out right. You know, it's going to come through. Um, 
I think there, there are some domains like, you know, uh, in the agriculture domain that you mentioned, genetically modified uh, organisms have gotten a, a pretty, uh, have been thoroughly brushed back uh, by regulation. My understanding is that there's a certain degree to which that has inhibited some real uh, potential life-saving <laughs> uh, innovations in terms of more bountiful crops. Um that don't have the the disadvantages that people seem to attach to it. Um, but uh, in terms of how the degree to which these things are effective in holding back true fundamental and actual advantageous innovations, I think is an open question. Um, well, uh, to a degree, I think it is. So you, you used the Uber example before. I think Uber mm-hmm. and Airbnb, for that matter, as well, are examples of where the new business model, I think most people would argue is, is better than the previous business model, right? Using Uber is a superior experience. It, it meets a market need. Yeah, yes. it meets an unmet market. Or you created a market that didn't exist before because it's so much better than the previous system. But that, that's going to be beside the point. But mm-hmm. the, the point I was going to make is that in so doing, in both examples, um, Airbnb and Uber, they disrupted a single sector or industry, mm-hmm. the hospitality industry or the um, the taxi industry. They right. the there wasn't there the potential for wide scale societal, extremely negative consequences that might cause democratic societies to collapse into themselves. That was mm-hmm. not there. Yeah. Which is not to say that those things didn't need to be more effectively regulated. I, th- I think they did. But in the case of systems like chat GPT, I think the, the argument for regulation is much, much stronger. I'm just, so this is my own libertarian streak. I worry in terms of who, who knows better, right? That fundamental premise that, uh, you know, a little while ago when you're having uh, internet providers reporting in the U.S. Senate and you have U.S. senators saying the internet is a series of tubes. I know for a fact that the internet is a series of tubes. Uh, that's the legislator, you know, that, like that's the guy we want to be regulating this technology that he doesn't even understand. So I, I don't in any way disagree with you that there are major concerns and that we as a society have to, have ways of sort of adjudicating what we want and what we don't want with regard to the technologies. I'm a little skeptical of, as with regard to traditional regulatory uh, approaches to it. But but what you just said to me is an argument for a better government, not to not regulate. I definitely <laughs> well, I definitely agree that we need to have, uh, especially in your country and many other countries for that matter, <laughs> a better. Uh, you know, better government that that's more informed about the matters of the day. But you know, that's, yeah, that is I'm a whole still, different conversation. Uh, yeah, we we should we should definitely queue it up subsequently. Right. Okay. So shall we um shall we segue and talk about some of our favorite things? Yes, absolutely. You go first. So today we agreed we would talk about some of our fav- some of our favorite foods or drinks. 
And I think I have a, um, one of each. My favorite food, one of my favorite foods, I shouldn't, I shouldn't say that's exclusively my favorite food, is kangaroo steak or kangaroo fillet, rather. Interesting. Filet? Would you not say that filet? No, here they say fillet. Interesting. Yeah. How do you say buffet? Do you say buffet or buffet? Buffet. 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 <laughs> yeah. That's another one of those. Kangaroo filet. Well, that's that must be like a, a, a British English type thing. How Brit Brits say valet, whereas we would say valet. Yeah, yeah. A few reasons why I, I love kangaroo fillet. It is not industrially made, right? So you don't have all the typical ills and downsides of of industrial scale meat production that you see with other meats. Um. It's very lean and healthy. It's very good for you. And it's bloody delicious. Is it? Yeah. I would I would have guessed that it was kind of gamey. It is gamey, but it's it's yeah. uh, it wouldn't be as tender as a, you know, I don't know, what's the equivalent, uh the, the beef equivalent of it of a fillet. What would what would you call it? A fillet? <laughs> a fillet? Yeah, right. <laughs> fillet mignon. Oh yeah, yeah that's yeah. the one. Yeah, okay. So it wouldn't be as tender. But it's yeah. it's very good. You put it on the grill, like a very hot grill, for one minute on each side, and it's crispy on the outside and nice and and pink on the inside, and it's delicious. Sounds good. What's your favorite food? Uh, I wasn't prepared for foods. I would. I thought we were just going with drinks. Oh, okay. So, what's your favorite? <laughs> what's your favorite drink? And I also thought we were specifically talking about alcoholic drinks. So, <laughs> so, um, so I'm, I'm a bourbon person. So that's what I'm going with. What kind of bourbon? <laughs> this is the least, least interesting <laughs> favorite things ever. Um, so I was at, actually, I was at a bourbon tasting last year and they had a couple bottles of what's called Pappy Van Winkle. And this is like the high end one that people will pay a hundred dollars for an empty bottle. So that they can say they had it. Really? Not yeah, not one person, not one person at this entire event guessed when we did the tasting, guessed the Pappy Van Winkle accurately. Mm -hmm. So uh so I'm not buying it. But the the one that I like the best is called Blanton's. Comes in a, a sort of a I don't even know what you call it. What are, what are the old uh, dice cubes that they use in Dungeons and Dragons? Like a duodecahedron kind of bottle. Uh, it kind of looks like the holy hand grenade from uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Uh, but it's it's really it's really good stuff. It's kind of, it's been kind of hard to get the last couple of years. So let let, let um, me ask you: if, if an empty bottle of that first bourbon you mentioned before costs a hundred dollars, how much is a full bottle? Um, a few hundred. Uh, I'm going to Google it while we're on right now. <laughs> okay, while um, you're doing that, there there were for a while there people were buying empty bottles like just so that they can. Say, this is so funny. I've never heard of that yeah, before. I know it's ridiculous. <laughs> so to, uh, while you're doing this, I'll I'll talk about my favorite drink, and I'm going to try and offset the lack of of um, healthiness that you're projecting with your choices here. By the way, with a simple search, I'm getting like $1,300 bottles, uh, $1,000 bottles. I know you can get uh, some varieties for, you know, 400 bucks. But... For listeners who might be interested, can you say the name? Can you say the name of it again? Pappy Van Winkle. 
Okay. Or old Rip Van Winkle is is the same. Oh, I guess that is Pappy Van Winkle is what is what is called the proper name of Pappy Van Winkle is old Rip Van Winkle. Where is it anyway, produced? I don't buy it because it's too expensive for me. Where, where do they make it? Uh, Kentucky. So I believe Buffalo Trace is the distillery. Hmm. But technically, any bourbon is uh, it's one of those things that technically if it's if it's called bourbon, it's supposed to be from Kentucky. Okay. Yeah. My favorite drink is my daily green shake that I consume every day. Uh, a much healthier. Cannot be your favorite. I must say, it is my favorite. It's delicious. You actually enjoy it. Yeah, I do enjoy it because not just because it's healthy. It's also it's it's delicious, and I, I put uh, carrot and uh, cum- cucumber in there, and kale and celery and avocado. <laughs> And garlic and ginger and nuts. And I'm sure sounds disgusting. I'm sure I'm leaving some stuff out. And I use coconut milk and I blend it and it's it's fucking great. I love it. Okay. So you with your lean meat and uh and health drink and me with my <laughs> bourbon. <laughs> Seems kind of on on point. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You'll have to try some bourbon. I'll try some of the bulgur wheat or whatever the hell it is. Next time we meet. Next time we meet. Yeah. Okay. This is a long one, but it was a good discussion. Interesting stuff. Okay. um, I'll talk to you next week. Until we meet again. Bye, Sean. All right. Bye.